about 2007, I inherited from my sister who passed away from breast cancer, you know, pretty good amount of money and was trying to be very smart, right, about investing and diversifying and, you know, went to an investment advisor and I think tried to do all those things right. And, you know, we all know kind of what happened a year or two later. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by ASTOTS Academy, which offers online courses to help investors better manage their stock portfolios, aspiring professionals to learn how to value any company in the world, business leaders to make their companies financially world-class, and even beginners to implement a simple, lifetime investment plan. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash academy to get free access to my short course, Six Ways to Lose Your Money and Six Strategies to Win, where I share the six lessons I've learned from all of these podcasts, interviews. Well, fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guests, Steve Anderson. Steve, are you ready to rock? I am. Let's rock and roll. All right. I'm going to introduce you to the audience. And I must say, I woke up at 4 a.m. this morning. I was so excited for this interview. So I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been preparing and going through so many things, but I'm going to introduce you to the audience. Steve Anderson is an expert in strategic risk and business growth, drawing on decades of experience in the insurance industry. He wrote, the Bezos Letters, 14 Principles to Grow Your Business Like Amazon, which has become a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and international bestseller. With hundreds of thousands of followers, Steve has been handpicked by LinkedIn as one of the most influential thought leaders. And ladies and gentlemen, go to LinkedIn right now and type in Steve Anderson and follow him. He's got a lot of great content and a lot of interesting things to say. So, Steve, Take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Well, I'm currently just outside Nashville, Tennessee, where I've lived for the last 20 years. And one of my favorite hobbies is cooking. And it's a hobby my wife completely supports. So that's the benefit. <laughs> you know, when my, uh, when my parents retired, it seemed like my mom kind of retired from cooking and she turned it over to my dad. And then he got really interested in it. So I can remember being home in North Carolina with mom and dad. And dad would be cooking all kinds of great fun stuff, which he didn't do when he was working. <laughs> yep, exactly. A little more time to plan and, and prep. So Yeah. And uh, I understand that the environment in Nashville is pretty vibrant these days with the startup community and business community. Tell me just a little bit about Nashville for those people. Keep in mind that a lot of my <clears throat> listeners also are in Asia. Right. So Nashville, you may have heard of as Music City. So certainly country music, and there's actually a whole lot more than just country here. But music is actually the third biggest industry in Nashville. The second biggest is publishing. So a number of large book publishers are here. And the number one industry is healthcare. So several of the large in the U.S. healthcare systems are headquartered here. It's a great environment, you know, low taxes, lots of businesses moving in, and it is vibrant and creative, which is kind of fun, you know. Mm. So, you know, write a lot. If you're in a creative uh, arena, it's just a great environment to, to do that in. Mm. And um, I have a, a little story about Nashville. I've been in Nashville one time. I was passing through Nashville. 
It was 1982 and I was 17 years old and I was on a Greyhound bus mm. and I was on a one-way ticket given to me by my mom and dad. I was going from Akron, Ohio to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, passing through mm -hmm. Nashville. Yep. And my parents had arranged for me to go to a drug rehab in Baton Rouge General Hospital. And they told me, if you can't get sober from this rehab, you can live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. <laughs> and that was my one-way ticket. And <laughs> I stopped, it. stopped in Nashville and, you know, it just, uh, you know, a little overnight stop, I think, and then onwards. And luckily, from that day of arriving in Baton Rouge, Louisiana until today, I have remained sober. So I didn't have to stay in Baton Rouge. You didn't have to stay in Baton Rouge. That's probably <laughs> a good thing. I, it, it, it's a good town, but uh, it's certainly hot and humid most of the time. Exactly. And then I ended up in Bangkok, which is quite similar in, in weather. <laughs> now, I, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about your book because I just think it's so fascinating. And the first thing is just if you could just tell the audience a little bit about why or how you got started in even coming up with this idea. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I asked that is because people would look at that and think, how could you write a book summarizing other people's writing? I mean, how, how could that be interesting? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in the insurance industry, I've spent really the last 20 plus years working with technology and new emerging technologies and how to apply it. And one of the things that I realized a few years ago is the biggest risk a business faces today is actually not taking enough risk. And, and certainly with technology growing as fast as it is, businesses just don't have the time they used to, to spend a year or two years or three years just kind of figuring out, okay, what is this new thing and how do we take advantage of it or, or do we just ignore it? And so I started examining companies who did it well and who didn't do it well, right? So we've got our Blockbusters and our Blackberries and, and Sears now. I mean, we've got a whole list of companies that haven't made that transition well and also looked at companies that had. And Amazon certainly stood out as a company that has been able to continue to invent. And again, this is a Jeff Bezos phrase, invent on behalf of the customer. And they continue to do that against really all odds. It's a, it's a unique organization. In that, I came across the shareholder letters. Uh, Bezos, they went public in 1997. He wrote his first letter that was released in April of 1998 and kind of had read one or two letters and then was really impressed with how much he gave away. I call it hidden in plain sight. His keys to growing Amazon. And so then I, I sat down over several days and read every letter, there were 20 at the time, straight through as a full narrative and realized, wow, there's something here. And literally the first thing I did was create a, you know, a giveaway, lead magnet, white paper, just a one-page summary of each of the letters and some key points and things like that. And my wife is in the book publishing business, so I had a little bit of an end there, showed it to her and the, the founder of the publishing company she, she works for now. And they both came back almost immediately and said, this is a book. And so that started about a 18 month journey of figuring out what that looks like, which culminated in the, the publishing of what you have, the Bezos letters. So, And that's kind of one of the most interesting things about how any project or book starts in this case is that you're looking for your own interest. You know, you're saying, what can I learn from this? And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you realize, hey, 
I've got something I can bring to the world. Well, let's bring it to the world. I know uh, a lot of the, the people listening to this podcast are going to go download it on uh, Audible or as a paperback or hardback on Amazon or other places that it's, that it's listed. They can also go to your website, I believe. Correct. Yep. That is thebezosletters.com. Great. Yep. So any of those places, they can also go, you can go to the show notes if you miss that. And in the show notes, just click on the link and it'll take you there. But let's go through, you know, one or two of these, you know, of the 14 principles. And I identified a few that I thought were kind of interesting. One was obsess over customers. Another was apply long-term thinking. And then the other one was about measure what matters, but question what's measured. And those are some that stood out to me, but I'm curious also about from a perspective of risk management, which is really what we're talking about today, Right. what stands out to you? Well, you know, there, <laughs> that's always a hard you know, a question to answer. It's like asking me, which of my grandchildren do I love best, right? <laughs> so they're 14 for a reason, and we've grouped them or categorized them into four cycles. So test, build, accelerate, and scale. And depending on where a business is, again, it could be a startup business, it could be a, bus a business that's been around a number of times, they're in these cycles. And, and actually, I believe they're always going through these cycles. So a new product starts with testing. I would say some that resonate with people are encourage successful failure. You know, so again, don't normally hear successful and failure in the same phrase, right? So what does that mean? But let's let's talk a little bit about the ones you picked out. So mm. in the build is obsess over customers. And that is a core tenet at Amazon. And again, back to that phrase, we invent on behalf of the customer. So everything you see that Amazon, they just released last week a bunch of new hardware stuff. All of that started at some point I don't know how long ago, with what do we think customers would like and what problem can we solve for customers and how do we go about doing that, right? So it's really obsess over customers. And, you know, their really core mission statement is we want to be the world's most customer-centric company. That's what's in their, you know, security filings, you know, and really mindset. And that that mindset is incorporated in everything they do. Uh, I, I so, got to stop you there and just ask this question. There's, there's listeners out there that are going, check, we've got that in our mission statement, obsess yeah. over a customer, but that's not what they're doing. And, and actually, I would say, you know, what they probably have is we focus on customers. We have a great customer experience. We, you know, those kinds of words. Obsessive is a very different kind of word and has a very different connotation than, you know, there's probably on one hand, I could count the other companies that I know that really truly obsess over customers. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very different mindset than what normally, as you say, absolutely accurately, a business owner would say, well, we do that. And but do you, do you do it to the point that you're obsessive? Right. And that has some negative connotations. Yeah. You know, that guy's and, obsessed. And, yep. Yeah. And that actually is I, a core question for some of the negative you hear about Amazon, how they treat their employees and fulfillment centers and other things is that they are so focused on the customer that everything has to be focused on that. Hmm. Right. So 
anyway, interesting. Yeah, and again, I I know we don't have a lot of time, so I, I could go into a lot more depth there, but it is a core tenet, and I think don't assume you've got that checked off. Got it. I remember when I left America it was 1992, and I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And uh, the company that was known for obsessing about the customers was Nordstrom. Yeah, exactly. That, that would time. be an example. Yep. yep. And okay. I think still today, that would be a good example. Yeah. So you also, you also uh, I think, picked out apply long-term thinking. That's also in yeah. the build cycle. And, you know, I think one of the issues is here, at least in the States, is that quarterly profit, quarterly reporting, we've got to show, you know, movement every quarter. And Bezos basically said in that very first 1997 letter is we are going to invest for the long term. We are not going to worry about quarterly earnings, quarterly profits. And they didn't. It was probably, you know, I can't remember what year now. I probably 10 years before Amazon showed a profit mm. because they were reinvesting everything into logistics and fulfillment center. So fast delivery was a core tenant, getting more people on the platform. So they had more negotiating power to lower prices. And then in early 2000, 2001, they did something crazy. They allowed their competitors to come on their platform. It's now called Amazon Marketplace. Mm. And and literally sell right next to Amazon stuff. Why? Because Bezos said, if it's better for the customer, if they have better selection, a lower price than we can get, that's better for the customer. And ultimately that will be better for Amazon and our shareholders. It's such a great example of how the obsess on the customer leads you to maybe counterintuitive decisions Yes, but, but if absolutely. You're, but you're looking at that customer who's frustrated that they have to jump from here to there to there to get the different products that they want. Yep. Um, you can understand. Um, it, yeah, exactly. And two quick kind of practical examples of that long-term thinking. One is Bezos is funded and is building on his ranch in Texas a 10,000-year clock. So the second is once uh, every year, once a millennia, the minute moves, I mean, a 10,000 year clock, it's crazy, right? But for him, it is a, an example of what it means to think long-term. Mm. And again, back in that 97 letter, he said, you know, people ask about working at Amazon and he said there, you know, it's hard to work here, mm. but we are building something we can tell our grandchildren about. Wow. So again, he's thinking multi-generational. So that the 10,000 year clock, I think is a fascinating, you know, and you could kind of dismiss it as just some rich guy's pet project, but there's more there, I think. Yeah. The second um, is Blue Origin, his space company. Mm. So he started that in 2000, first five years, never talked about it. Self-funded, he, he funds it. And again, he believes and... <laughs> Again, you have to cut me off here because I, I, I have so many stories. He was the valedictorian of his high school class. And in his valedictorian speech, he said, we need to move manufacturing and people into space and make the earth a national park that you come visit. Right. So and Blue Origin is the 
again, long-term thinking piece of how do we do that? Well, how you do that is you lower the cost of getting to space. So reusability and all of those kinds of things. And he's thinking multi-generational. Mm. Mm. So again, there's long-term a, thinking is a big key. There's a few things about this that I, I have to, to comment about. The first thing is that, you know, he, I believe he was an analyst prior to being a, he was. a, a business, an entrepreneur. And yes. I was an analyst for 20 years. And one of the things I always say to CEOs when I meet them, they said, what would be your advice? You know, a newly listed company, I'd said, never follow analysts. You know, analysts, <laughs> analysts are not business people. They're not entrepreneurs in most cases. And all they're really looking for is something short term. And so as a CEO, stake your claim, make, take your, you know, get your point of where you want to go and don't be thrown about. The second thing about this long-term thinking is in one of the courses I teach, which is called the Valuation Masterclass, I teach about valuation. And I try to separate the idea of value from profit. And it's hard to do because we always think profit, profit, and that's right. what it's all about. But that's not what it's all about. In fact, when we value a company, Amazon's a great example. 10 years of losses, were they not creating value? They were creating value. So value can be created even while a company is losing money. And that is a great lesson to separate value from profit. And the last point about long-term thinking is that for the young people out there, if you want to build a competitive advantage, it's easy. Everybody is distracted and they're focusing on the short term. Right. Just pick long-term goals and a long-term focus and you will have a competitive advantage. That's yep. my last part of that. <laughs> and there was an, was there one more? And I don't remember. I, I was now. talking about the measuring. Oh, the measure. Yeah. Me yeah. So yeah. in the scale, right. So kind of you test, build, accelerate, and now scale it's measure what matters, question what's measured and trust your gut. And Bezos has a very interesting view on data. One, Amazon is absolutely data-driven. They measure everything. And literally every employee has access to that information, right? Mm. And in, I believe it was the 2006 letter, he actually published his email address and said, you know, one, if, if we're doing a good job, let us know, you know, because here's my address. I will get it to the team to let them know that you appreciate the work that they're doing on your behalf. But what also happened was people started complaining, right? This didn't work. I didn't get this on time. In fact, I just uh, last week, two weeks ago, ordered something and got the wrong thing. Unusual, mm. but, you know, filled out a form told, you know, I got the wrong item. Here's the item I thought I was going to get and got it shipped. I got that new item and was able to return the other one without a problem. But what Bezos then did is he used to do it himself. He doesn't anymore. He has a team, but people still send emails to that address. And if there is a couple, you know, it doesn't even have to be a hundred. If there are a few emails that are highlighting a delivery problem or something else, that email will get forwarded to the head of that department, group, product line, whatever, with a single character, a question mark, 
<laughs> and nobody at Amazon wants to get a question mark email from Bezos because basically what it says is you drop everything and figure out where the problem is and fix the root cause of the problem. Mm. Probably the best example of this is here in the US, they were going to, they had a competition, right, between cities of a second major headquarters. They gathered all kinds of data and had massive amounts. But he said at the end of the day, that is a gut decision. You know, what you take all that data, you take it in, it's important. You question, you know, is this measuring the right thing? And then you've got to make a judgment, right? So you trust your gut on mm. making that decision. Wow. So it's, you know, again, today people talk, you know, it's data driven and AI and machine learning and right, all those kinds of things. And you need to trust your gut, which I think is just an interesting a dichotomy or viewpoint of the importance of data and. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think my lesson in my life is that I learned a lot from Dr. W. Edwards Deming was the idea that, you know, first thing when you see data that's strange, he always said, you know, it's probably an error. Right. And investigate, you know, what it is. And so, but the idea of, you know, a very famous statistician telling us, telling me, which he told me in some of the classes that I attended, he said basically that the most important things are immeasurable. Mm -hmm. And like that, that just kind of blew my mind. So it's that combination of data and trust your gut is pretty and fascinating. Trust your gut. That's right. Boy, exactly. I'm, I'm pretty excited to get on to it. So I'm going to just go straight into the question. Are you ready? <clears throat> I am. It is time. It is time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. So about 2007, my wife and I, I inherited from my sister who passed away from breast cancer, you know, pretty good amount of, of money from her and was trying to be very smart, right, about investing and diversifying and, you know, went to an investment advisor and I think tried to do all those things right. And, you know, we all know kind of what happened a year or two later and, you know, lost some money. And one of the things that we were doing is we were going to have a literally a major renovation to our house. So we we live in a historic home and we were going to add this big addition onto the back and had plans drawn and working with architects and right all of that kind of stuff. And you know, so when that downturn started, I pretty I, you know, it took a little while, but we basically pulled the plug on doing that because that would have taken that would have drained pretty much all of our mm. resources at that point. You know, so part of the worst <laughs> investment, and I, again, I don't, I have thought back, how do you mitigate this? But we diversified into REITs, REI, you know, real estate, investment some of that trusts, real yeah. estate investment trusts in class A office buildings. Well, again, we all know with the, the recession, you know, what happened to that marketplace and again, lost eventually got some money back, but it's very illiquid and, you know, really didn't, didn't perform well. So kind of looking back going, okay, what would I have changed? What would I have done? I, I, I think in that situation, I'm not sure I would have changed anything. I felt like I did some things right and, and still got, you know, pretty significant losses there. 
mm. as we go forward. So, you know, for me, and again, part of my, you know, insurance and risk management and, you know, how do you go about trying to predict what nobody was predicting at that point, you know, in the 2006, 2007, right. that was hard, you mm. know, so worst investment, probably was it, you know, my fault, mm, you know, again, maybe, maybe not. It could have been just the circumstances that were around there, but. And can you yeah. tell us a little bit about like, when did you get out of it or when did you capitulate or say, okay, now I've got a, or some people tell me, well, it's 15 years later and I'm still holding that. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of the huge project, that was fairly quick. I realized, you know, this, this is not looking good. And I went into protection mode pretty much at that point going, you know what, we can't spend this money, right? This is not a wise thing to do as we're looking forward and protecting mm. as much as we can. You know, so, so what I could, and, and again, still working with, you know, what's the right timing to get out of a market or into it or some things like that. But yeah, I moved pretty quickly. And some of that, as I mentioned was long-term anyway. That's what it was designed to do yeah. and couldn't get out of that quickly. But yeah, we were, and I, I'm trying to think when, but I bet it was probably 2009 okay. when Got we it. were making all those decisions. Yep. So, all right. So let's, let's try to summarize the lessons that you learned. I think one of the things that I would do differently is think more about protecting the downside, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. meaning, you know, for me, and again, I go back to Amazon too, in terms, they do that a lot in terms of how they move forward and make decisions and approve projects and all those kinds of things. But, you know, for me, it's something always can happen outside your control. Yep. So think about okay, what am I going to do if I would do probably more of that kind of talking and thinking and planning. And certainly now, you know, I'm older, <laughs> more protection of assets than growth of assets. And, and so really examining, you know, what that might look like right. uh, as okay. you move forward. Got it. So maybe I'll summarize what I took away from it and uh, let me know if I missed anything. So this actually comes to a book that I wrote called How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market. And also it's an online course that I teach. And the first thing that I try to teach is long-term thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, and what I say is that, let's say my average student is 30 years old and they tell me that they want to retire when they're 60. Well, there's 30 years right there. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you're going to stop investing. You could live to be 90. And therefore, that's another 30 years. So we've got a 60 year investment horizon. And once you start to put things into decades, it starts to change the mentality. So that's the, the first thing is that a lot of times we get caught up in, in the short term. Mm -hmm. The second part of this is very few people ever talk about shortfall risk. People say to me, oh, I, I'm, I'm low risk. I just put my money in the bank. No, that's high risk. That's high. Yeah. Cause you're not earning anything. Correct. So that you run the risk that at the time of retirement, that you don't have the $5 million that you needed to live off of or whatever that amount was because the 1 million you accumulated over the years never grew. <laughs> and so shortfall risk is a huge risk and the price of it is awful. 
I always tell the story about how my mom and dad, they lived in retirement for 22 years in a happy, comfortable retirement. My dad was not a super high flying, high paid and mom, mom was a housewife. Mm-hmm. But when mom came to Thailand to live with me, I could have the conversation to say, you've got enough money to support yourself for the rest of your life. You don't need to worry about money. And what I, what I learned from that, you know, is that shortfall risk could have been, a, it could have been a much more tougher conversation. Mm-hmm. So always remember long-term and shortfall. Now, the next thing is about REITs. People ask me, Andrew, why is it that you don't recommend that people buy REITs? Well, because when I look at investing for the long-term, I look at the stock market. You know, ultimately investing in companies is where you really get the gain. You've got a CEO, you got a management team that are working hard to do that. Now, in the stock market, we also have real estate companies and we also have REITs listed there. So if you're buying some sort of ETF, you already own REITs in the stock market in most cases. Now, the other thing about it is that think about your real estate allocation, your home. Mm-hmm. You're already exposed to real estate. So if you go out and do REITs, you're just doubling up exposure in a lot of different ways. And so I say to keep it simple, focus on stocks and bonds. Some people say just cash, but just that point of focusing on the things that are really, really going to make money over a long period of time. And the last thing is lump sum. It's one of the biggest challenges when my students come through my course and they say, okay, my parents just gave me $300,000 and what do I do? I love what you just taught me. I'm going to dump it in the market right now. And that's when you say, whoa, 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 whoa. If you just dump it in the market, you run the risk of putting it too high. And therefore the dollar cost averaging concept is one of the best. So those are some of my takeaways. Anything you'd add? No, I think that's a good summary. Yeah. So where were uh, you, where were you, you know, 10 years ago? Exactly. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to reach the market. I'm telling you. It ain't easy. So I, I, yep. I, I only wish that my book had, uh, I think I have about 120 reviews on Amazon and I wish I could get to your level and what I can see. And for the audience out there, you know, you've got fantastic reviews. Your rankings for the book is fantastic. So it's my only wish to come <laughs> halfway as you've come. Well, yep. And again, that's a process too. Just keep working at it. I exactly. keep working at it. Exactly. Yep. exactly. So based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Do a better job than I did of protecting the downside. Got it. Yep. And protecting the downside is key. And I think For the listeners out there, you're going to learn more about that when you go through the book. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, my goal with the book really was to speak more, you know, keynotes and and things like that. Obviously, in March of this year, that kind of shut down. I was fortunate to be getting more and more of that. So my goal into next year is the way I phrase it right now is to keep the book alive right? Keep the buzz talking about it and that kind of stuff that I am hoping will lead to uh, live in-person events. And interestingly, Andrew, we've sold foreign rights to 17 countries. So it's being published. It's already available in Korean, Japan, trying to think of the other Asian countries, several Asian countries. China, actually China. I always have to be careful here, but it's so complex Chinese in Taiwan (laughs) and actually simple Chinese in China. And actually that 
is just getting ready to come out in China. So, Exciting. you know, I we were hoping that Asia would be a, an interesting market to uh, to talk about. So that's my goal. Just I would like to get on stage more. Well, I think that you should be speaking to the CFA Institute and I can introduce you to some people there. But I just did a, a webinar last night about how to give a great presentation and it was very well attended but the point is is that that's full of fund managers and analysts that need to hear the lessons of this book so yeah. afterwards let's talk about that all, all right, right. that'll be great thank you yeah. so listeners there you have it another story of loss to keep you winning remember to go to my worstinvestmentever.com academy to get free access to my short course six ways to lose your money and six strategies to win as we conclude Steve, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And, oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I just, you know, I, I want to go back to obsess over customers. If you're a business owner, really think about that more because you probably don't right now and you should. So keep it going. What a challenge to all of us listeners. I appreciate that very much. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying I'll see you on the upside.